I think it is important that we take a few minutes as we kick off this series and we talk about our sleep habits. Uh, in fact, my thought was just to do a little survey with you in, in this room so you can kind of get a feel for where you are in relation to the rest of the population. I did some research this week and I found out 54% of adults prefer to sleep in the fetal position. 37.5% prefer to sleep on their back. I assume that means the other 9% are stomach sleepers. Out of curiosity, how many of you sleep on your back? Let's see, show of hands here. Okay, that seems about right. And how many of you sleep in the fetal position or on your side, would you say? All right, I assume the rest of you are stomach sleepers. Okay, good. Here's another one. Uh, falling asleep on average takes 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, just an interesting piece of that. Or let me, I'll, I'll ask you first. How many of you are able to fall asleep within 15 minutes of lying down in bed at night? Okay, that's pretty good. Some of you, it might take longer. Uh, here's the interesting piece of that one. The same report that I read said that if you pass out within a few minutes, it's usually a sign that you're sleep deprived. So that's, if that's you, now you know, all right? All right, let's talk about average hours of sleep per night. Uh, do something for me. Just in general, would you in your head right now calculate how much sleep you think you get per night? Like how many hours? Just kind of do the math real quick. All right. The average American adult gets 6.8 hours of sleep per night. So if you're around seven hours, you are in line with that. All right. Now, interesting, in 1942, the average was 7.9 hours. So in 80 years, we've lost an hour of sleep. Doesn't mean we don't need the hour. It just means we've lost it. For what it's worth, experts say the average adult needs seven to nine hours per night, which means the average person in America is about 10 or 15 minutes shy of what they need, of the minimum. Everybody you meet is a little bit sleep deprived. By the way, teenagers are supposed to be getting eight to 10 hours of sleep, and on average, they get 6.5 to 7.5. So they are among the most sleep deprived among us. All right, some more. Hawaii is the most sleep-deprived state. Minnesota is the least. 40% of adults admit to unintentionally falling asleep during the day at least once a month. Is that you? 70 million people in the U.S. struggle with sleep disorders, and 90 million people have reported snoring problems. And by the way, if they sleep next to someone, that's another 90 million who have to live with their <laughs> snoring problems. Actually, they're the ones with the real snoring problem, you know? Uh, but maybe what's most compelling, 30% say that they experience insomnia. They have trouble getting to or staying asleep. Now, I don't know if that's you, and 30%, while well, that sounds like a lot, that would mean that 70% of us don't have trouble sleeping at all. But can I tell you what I found anecdotally? That number's not right. Maybe 30% have problems sleeping every night, but when something is going on in your personal world, something that brings you stress, or even something that brings you excitement, sleep can be hard to come by. For example, if I know that I have a flight tomorrow morning, and I'm heading out on a wonderful vacation that I've been waiting for all year, and I know I have to set my alarm for 7 a.m. to be able to wake up and get ready and get to the airport, Guess who finds their body waking up at 4 a.m. in anticipation and not able to go back to sleep? Even if you don't have insomnia, you probably know what it is to respond to the things that are going on to you, in you, around you. Those things affect you. And when researchers have looked into what it is that gives people trouble sleeping, here's what they found. Here's what's on the list of things that might keep you up all night. 
replaying the day's events or regret, thinking about your kids, physical pain that you are dealing with, your work, or we could say your school if you're a student, your financial situation, your excitement or anticipation over something coming up, coffee and screens, and finally, one of the top things that keeps you up all night is the person sleeping next to you. I mentioned listening to somebody snoring, talking in their sleep is another one. And actually, I've got one that I get to deal with every night, restless leg syndrome. You know what restless leg syndrome is? Uh, it's a thing where their person can't hold their legs still. They're, they're, the, the legs just kind of want to jump. In fact, the more they think about trying to keep still, the more crazy making it gets and, and, and they have to move them. Point is, there are all sorts of things that keep us up at night. And, and even as you sit here today, if you're somebody who gets wonderful sleep and you're thinking, this is going to be so irrelevant to me. Okay, I have good news. This isn't really a series on sleep. It's a series about the things that are affecting you and what God would have you know about them. Because even if you're getting eight hours, my guess is some of those things on that list right there are making your soul restless. You're just better at turning it off at 10 o'clock at night. Doesn't mean those same things aren't on your mind. And what I want you to know as we kick off this series is that God has some truths for you in the Bible that are meant to give you and your soul rest. He's got truths for you that he's hoping will give you some peace so that you can get some shut-eye. Listen real quickly to some of these verses in Scripture that tell us this. All right? Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will lie down and, will you say this with me? Sleep for you alone, Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Psalm 127, too. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those that he loves. Proverbs 3, 24. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Oh my gosh, sweet sleep sounds good. If that's what God wants for us, how do we get that? What is it we're supposed to know that helps us get back to sleep? That's what this series is all about. And again, if you sleep fine, what is it you're supposed to know about things that affect you a different sort of way? Today, what is it that God would have you know about the person sleeping next to you? Truth be told, if it's not snoring, talking in their sleep, even restless leg syndrome that keeps most people awake when it comes to their partner, here's what it is. It's conflict. I remember years ago when I was first married, somebody gave Andrea and I some marriage advice from the Bible. Uh, they said, Chris, if you and Andrea want to know the secret to a happy marriage, it is to keep a short ledger with each other. Don't hold on to grudges. Don't let conflict go unresolved. In fact, do not go to bed angry. Have you heard that? Don't let the sun go down on the thing that has got you angry. That's out of Ephesians 4. And I thought that that was good advice. I will take that to heart until I realized our arguments often start after the sun has already gone down. <laughs> Anybody else notice that? A uh, little bit of insight into two of your pastors here at Crosswinds that happen to be married to each other. We argue. Sometimes we argue a lot. Um, I love arguing. I'm wired that. Sometimes I feel like the point of talking is to get to an argument because that's when it starts to get fun. Andrea does not love arguing. But even then, sometimes she can start an argument as we are going to bed. 
I mean, in fairness, it's always my fault, but, but, but we will walk into our bedroom and I will have left some clothes on the dresser instead of in the dresser uh, or, or in the closet, or I will leave them on this ottoman that we have in the corner of our bedroom and literally as I am getting in, into bed, I'm lying in bed ready to fall asleep, she will say, how many times do I have to tell you to stop putting your clothes on the ottoman? And what do you do with that as you're lying in bed? How do you not let the sun go down on your beef? Uh, it best. <laughs> At best, it's going to be try not to let the sun rise without remembering you were fighting when you went to bed, right? Anyway, one of the things that affects us is our significant other. And specifically, here's what it is. It's this. It's this thought. I'm going to put this up on the screen. The person next to me won't change. And as such, I will not get what I need in this life. This person sleeping next to me, sitting next to me, this person that I'm committed to will not change. No matter what I do, I cannot get them to change. And sure, that can be snoring or it can be leaving your clothes on the ottoman. But for many of us, the thing we're needing to see the change in is much more significant. It's an addiction we see in them. It's a temper that we see. It's an emotional absence. Maybe it's a physical absence. They're gone all the time. It's a character issue that you see. They aren't honest with you or, or they're not honest with other people. Maybe it's a spiritual challenge you're seeing. They're not following God. They, they don't know Jesus. Maybe you have conflict over the way they're parenting alongside you. You don't see eye to eye on what that ought to look like. There are an endless amount of things that are in the person next to you that you would not like so much and you would like to see changed and you have been trying for a while now to change them and they're not changing and that can keep you up at night. And here's the part that makes it worse. When you find yourself thinking that because they won't change, you won't be able to get what you need. I want to share four truths today from Scripture that I think speak to this feeling that we often have, and they should help you get to sleep. The first one we find is in Matthew 6. Jesus is talking about worry. Now, I'm not going to read the surrounding verses that talk about worry because we have talked about worry quite a bit the past few weeks. You don't need me to read you another passage on worry, but smack dab in the middle of talking about worry, Jesus says this. Take a look. But seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Let me fill in a little bit. All these things that you think you need, or better yet, all these things you really need, will be given to you when you seek God and his righteousness. And if one of the things keeping us up at night is this thought, I won't get what I need if they don't change, okay, what Jesus would have you know is, what you need is not in the person sleeping next to you. It is in God. Seek him first. There is this fascinating thing that is a part of modern romance, marriage, dating, romantic relationships, any kind of partnership. There is this modern thought that the person you are with, when you find the right person, they will complete you. They will meet all your needs. I blame Jerry Maguire in that wonderful scene where Tom Cruise tells Renee Zellweger, you complete me, but it's not true, is it? We do not complete each other. That's not realistic. Um, in 1996, somebody auctioned off a bunch of Albert Einstein's letters. Uh, and in the letters, one of these letters contained a list of expectations that Albert Einstein had for his wife. He was writing out his expectations. Okay, real quick. This is written in 1914. Just know that, all right? And the list included... Dirty laundry kept in good order, 
three meals regularly in my room, a desk maintained neatly for my use only, and the demand that she quit talking or leave the room if I request it. By the way, that marriage ended in divorce. Just so you know, not making that up. Uh, check out this list. Check out this list from Housekeeping Monthly. This is 1965, and this is actually called The Good Wife's Guide. This is from 1965. It says, plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious dinner ready when your husband gets home from work. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and are concerned with his needs. Prepare yourself. Put on some makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair. Be fresh looking. He's been with a lot of work-weary people. This one, prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash them up, brush their hair, change their clothes if needed. Remember, they're little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. <laughs> Have a cool or warm drink for him, and arrange his pillow, and take off his shoes. <laughs> Over the cooler months, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by, after all. Catering to his comfort will bring you immense satisfaction. This one, this one makes me, <laughs> let him talk first. Remember that his topics of conversation are more important than yours. <laughs> Never complain if he comes home late or goes out to dinner or entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his need to relax. Okay, why am I reading you this? Because while our understandings in marriage have evolved for the better, our expectations have evolved, today we're still believing what lies at the heart of this concept that our spouse or partner can somehow meet all our needs. And by the way, if you think doing your spouse's laundry sounds demanding or having a fire ready and a pillow, if letting them talk first sounds demanding, try meeting the demands of somehow giving transcendence to your spouse, or unconditional love to your partner, or giving them wholeness, or somehow giving them meaning, or giving them worth. I mean, honestly, the, the, the things that we expect today from our spouse might be worse than the ones we read in that magazine, because these are things that only God can give. An article I, I read in a religious journal put it this way. It's so good. It said, the Western fixation on romantic love creates a crushing burden for mere mortals. It engenders a powerful myth regarding love, courtship, and marriage that a fallible human partner can not only share our passions, but sate our existential yearnings. Contemporary couples expect much more from marriage than it can realistically deliver. As Eli Finkel of Northwestern University observes, most of us will be kind of shocked by how many expectations and needs we've piled on top of this one relationship. And I wonder if when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, I wonder if he was looking at a group of people who were seeking all of those things that they need in someone else and it wasn't ever working. God says, seek me and I will give you what you need. Okay. Here's another truth in scripture that I think he might have, you know, the person who most needs to change might be you. Now, real quick, before we talk about that, I need to say this. There are some marriage situations that are abusive and it is appropriate for you to get away from that spouse. And you should not assume the problem is you do not stay in an abusive relationship. 
If you need help processing that, we have a counseling pastor here, Sarah Holstra, who, who can help you think that through. You can find her on our website. But for the rest of us, the person who most needs to change might be you. Again, this is Jesus speaking one chapter later, and he's preaching, and he says this. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. Now, you've probably heard this passage before. We tend to read it, and we think about people we have problems with that we might be judging, like friends and coworkers and, and, and family, like your literal brother. You know, it says brother here. Okay, have you ever read this and thought about the person that you're sleeping next to? Let, let me change one word. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your spouse's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own. How can you say to your wife or husband, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Wow, that sounds very relevant to me. Is it possible that the person who most needs to be changed in your relationship is you? A few years back, a comedian wrote a book called Modern Romance, and in it, he wrote about watching his friend search for a date on this dating app on his phone. It was a OkCupid, and uh, here, here's what he wrote. He wrote, Derek got on OkCupid, and he let us watch as he went through his options. These were women whom OkCupid had selected as potential matches for him based on his profile and the site's algorithm. The first woman he clicked on was beautiful, with a witty profile page, a good job, and lots of shared interests, including a love of sports. After looking the page over for a minute or so, Derek said, well, she looks okay, but I'm gonna just keep looking for a while. I asked what was wrong, and Derek replied, she likes the Red Sox. This person writes, I was completely shocked. I couldn't believe how quickly he moved on. I mean, imagine the Derek of 30 years ago finding out that a beautiful, charming woman was a real possibility for a date with him. The Derek of 1993 would not have walked up and said, oh wait, you like the Red Sox? Forget it. But Derek of 2023 simply clicked an X on a web browser tab and deleted her without thinking twice. See, here's what's going on. We are all looking for the perfect soulmate, even in the person we're married to. And the perfect soulmate, you ready for who they're gonna be? Someone who's going to accept us in spite of our flaws. They're the perfect one for me because they're willing to put up with my flaws. And somehow, I expect them to have no flaws of their own. It's weird. We understand that flaws are part of the deal when it comes to us, accepting us, loving us. But when it comes to the other person, there are some things we need them to change. But here's another thing that scripture says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Your job isn't to change them. It is to change you. A few years back, there was a really insightful New York Times article that talked about three views of marriage that exist, three different lenses people kind of uh, view it through. 
And it said that most books on marriage, advice books, they approach marriage from the psychological lens. They say marriage is hard. And so uh, you need to pay attention to things like agreeableness and harmony and empathy and niceness. And, and, and then the article said the second lens is the romantic lens. And by the way, that's the dominant lens in movies and in music. And, and you want to marry someone you are passionately in love with. You want your marriage to be full of that kind of romance. But the article said there is a third lens, which is the moral lens. And it pointed to a book by an author and pastor named Tim Keller, who passed away very recently. And Tim Keller argued that one of the meanings behind marriage is to introduce you to yourself. It is in marriage you realize that you are not as noble and easy to live with as you thought. The author of this article wrote, in a good marriage, you identify your own selfishness, and you see that as the fundamental problem. You treat it more seriously than your spouse's selfishness. The everyday tasks of marriage are opportunities to cultivate a more selfless love. Okay, maybe the thing about the person sleeping next to you that's keeping you up at night is meant to be a reminder that there are some things that you need to change with you. All right, two more truths for you. And these actually come from a story that we find in the Bible. Um, I don't have time to read you the whole story or even most of the story, but it's about a guy named Daniel and a king named Nebuchadnezzar. If you've been around the Bible or church a little bit in your life, you might know most of the story. If not, what I will tell you, Daniel and his friends are Jewish followers of God that have been captured, brought to Babylon, and these young men have been chosen to be trained up to be servants of the king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar. And this king is not a good man. One day, he has a dream. Actually, Daniel 2.1 says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his mind was troubled, he could not sleep. Very appropriate for this series. And so he goes to his magicians and his sorcerers and his astrologers and he says, tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it meant, which is hilarious to me because like, they're supposed to just guess his dream? What's not hilarious, he says, if you don't, I will have you cut into pieces and destroy your houses so your family will have nowhere to live after you're gone. Like I said, bad guy. Of course, they cannot tell him what his dream was. They cannot guess it right. And so he prepares to put all of these people to death. And Daniel hears about this. And he says, wait a second. I think that my God will tell me your dream. Give me a chance. He prays to God. He sleeps on it. And God gives Daniel the same dream. And so he goes to the king the next day. And in Daniel 2, we read this. Daniel replied, none of your wise men, enchanters, magicians, diviners, none of them could explain to the king the mystery he asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And he explains it, and the king is blown away. Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel and his friends leaders in the kingdom, administrators. He puts them in charge of all of the wise men, and all is good until one day the king makes a giant golden statue and demands that everyone in the kingdom bow down and worship the statue. And if they don't, they will be thrown in a fiery furnace. 
Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are their names. They are high up leaders in the kingdom. They refuse to bow down and the king is outraged. He is so hard hearted, he has them thrown into this furnace. And if you know this story, the Bible tells us that God meets them in the furnace. The king looks in, and not only are are they not burning, not even singed, but there is a fourth man in the furnace, and it is such a good story. I'm not even telling it well. Pretend I'm not telling you this story so I can tell it better. We could spend a whole Sunday on this story, all right? I'm telling it to you so that I can tell you what happens right after it. In the very next chapter in Daniel, the one we never look at, the hard-hearted Nebuchadnezzar does something. The tantrum-driven, impulsive ruler writes a worship song. Chapter four opens like this. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. To the nations and the people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. And here's the song he writes. How great are his signs, How mighty God's wonders, his kingdom, not mine, is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then the hard-hearted Nebuchadnezzar goes on to tell his story. This guy who was going to have all of his people cut into pieces, the king who threw three of God's people in the furnace, has a complete change of heart. And he later goes on to say in that chapter, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Okay, here's the third truth that should help you sleep. The only person who can change someone's heart is God. The only one who can change your spouse is God. Now, I don't know who your spouse or partner is. I don't know what is in them, about them, that keeps you up or affects you. But what I do know is you are off the hook. You are not responsible to change them. And you don't need to lose sleep over how you're going to do it, what you could do different that would make change happen, why what you're doing isn't working to change them, because it's not your job. It's God's. The only person who can change the person next to you is God. And believe me, if he can change that guy, he can change who's with you. Well, then, well, then what, is, what is your job? As we said before, it's to change you. That's number two. But it's also this other thing we get from this story. We get it from Daniel. We get it from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who get thrown into the furnace. Here's the fourth truth. My job is to keep honoring God while I show respect to this other person. These men continue to be obedient to God and actually seek God first and his righteousness, all while having to navigate their relationship with this difficult king. They don't compromise their personal integrity. They continue to honor God throughout. And if you read the story, they still show tremendous respect to this difficult king while they wait for God to do what only he can do, soften someone else's heart. And I would bet this morning there are some of us who need to hear that truth. Not just that it's not our job to change someone, that it's God's, but that our job is to continue to honor God while we wait. Look, 
We all know marriage is difficult. It, it can keep you up all night. No one's denying that. In fact, we're acknowledging that today. It is hard. Um, have you heard the statistic 50% of marriages end in divorce? Have we all heard that at some point? That doesn't sound real hopeful, does it? Sounds like it's a coin flip. Although, can I say to you, that statistic is misleading. According to the Census Bureau, 72% of people who have been married are still married to their first spouse. It's second and third and fourth marriages that shift the average to make it look like 50-50. Also, if you heard that the divorce rate is the same in the church as it is outside the church, uh, that's because lots of people consider themselves part of the church even if they don't go. They go Christmas and Easter. Research shows if a person was in church last week, if they were in church last week, the divorce rate dropped by 27%. Overall, regular church attendance lowers the divorce rate anywhere from 25 to 50%, depending on the study that you look at. Church matters for your marriage. Um, that's a tangent. I know I'm selfish to tell you that, but I tell you that to say, I don't know what you struggle through as a couple, but you can get through this. There is hope. You have far more than a 50-50 chance. Most marriages do last a lifetime, and your partnership can succeed God wants it to succeed. But what he would have you know, your spouse will not give you all you need in this life. He will. The one who might need to change is you. In fact, you're the only one who can change you. You are the only one that you can change. But God is powerful to change the person you're sleeping next to. And he can soften even the hardest of hearts. As I close this morning, I wanna give you something to ask yourself. What are the things about my significant other that I need to release to God? What are the things I need to release to God that I don't have to change in them? And then what are the things in me that I need to look at in myself? Finally, what are the needs I've been looking to have met through someone else that only God can meet? I wanna ask you to stand with me. We're gonna pray as we go. And I wanna just pray for you that God meets those needs that maybe you've been looking to have met through someone else. God, we know that you have created us to have things in us that we need. We need companionship, we need community. You created us for that, but it doesn't mean that you can't meet those same needs in us other ways. And God, I ask this morning for my friends here, my church family here, some of us who, who so have been looking for something to change in the person we're with, and it never seems to change, God, I ask that you would do a powerful thing and change their heart, but in the meantime, God, that you would meet the needs we've been looking to have met elsewhere. Only you can meet them, God. You would not give us a need that you don't wanna meet. I ask this week that we recognize that, and God, that you show us where you'd have us look into ourselves. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.